Decades before Oregon became a state, black people lived here. Some were enslaved, some were free. Their stories, like those of many people of color, often aren't given the space they deserve in history books. But one organization is trying to bring those stories to a new generation of Oregonians. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with You Oregonian. Up next, Zachary Stocks, executive director of Oregon Black Pioneers, talks about his organization and its efforts to memorialize stories of black people living in what would become Oregon dating back to the 1800s. We talked about Stocks' background in colonial history. Beaver Hill, the long-forgotten mining town that was briefly home to one of the state's largest black populations at the time, the racism that predated the state's founding, and what he makes of the recent racial justice and renaming movements, and much more. Here's our conversation. Zachary, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Thanks, Andrew. It's cool to be here. It's great to have you. So last summer, you were named the first executive director of Oregon Black Pioneers, which is an organization that's been around for a long time, people may or may not have heard of. But, you know, we tend to in this state have a, if not historically accurate impression, um, at least of the early days of the Oregon Trail and people who who were white and first settled here who settled. I mean, what do we know about the Oregon Black Pioneers? Well, we know a good amount. And really, that is because of uh, some really intensive research that's been done by my organization long before I got here. Um, As you mentioned, Oregon Black Pioneers, we were founded in 1993. And it was really around answering that question, right? Like, what were the experiences of the people of African descent that participated in the largest mass migration, voluntary mass migration of people in American Mm -hmm. history, which is the Oregon Trail, right? So the peopling of non-Indigenous people in Oregon, we know that Blacks were among them, but we lack a lot of information about their actual lived experiences, um, and so our organization was founded to try and figure out, you know, what is the history there? Where did they live? What were their lives like? What kind of businesses did they create? What kind of uh, opportunities were there for their families? And then trying to present as much of that information as possible to the public in various capacities, whether that's historical markers, whether that's public presentations or, of course, in-person exhibitions. And you have a very specialized and unique history that kind of tailors really well to this organization and its mission. Can you can you give a brief background of kind of what led you to this organization and, and what your exp- expertise is? Yeah, um, it was pretty serendipitous. So I started back in uh, in June and I had just been laid off from a private exhibit design firm that I had only been working for for about six months. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been working in and around museums for 10 years now, and really that was born out of, I grew up in Virginia. I had a passion for going to a lot of museums, history museums in particular, uh, and especially living history museums. And I got really into the costume interpretation thing, and I wanted to pursue that as a career. So I went to uh, I went to William Mary for college, which is, as you probably know, is right on the campus of uh, Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. And so I got my first museum gig as an intern there for a year, did costume interpretation. Um, and then after getting my degree uh, in public history, decided I wanted to professionalize this work. So I moved to Seattle, went to University of Washington and got a master's degree in museum studies uh, and got my first paying museum job at the Northwest African American Museum. 
So that's where I started to learn the histories of blacks in the Pacific Northwest, because I'm not from here. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know any, anything about the experiences of blacks in Washington and Oregon, but I learned a ton, uh, working at that museum and I stayed there for, uh, four years. And, uh, afterwards I went on to an organization called Historical Seaport, which is, uh, a Washington state nonprofit that manages the state ships and they interpret maritime heritage of the uh, 18th and 19th century. So some of those stories include people of color as well, uh, including people of African descent. And so it really was uh, pretty interesting that I had suddenly, without even really trying to, <laughs> built up a lot of expertise in the history of black people in the Pacific Northwest in the 18th and 19th century. So when the opportunity came up at Oregon Black Pioneers, I really thought, well, shoot, there's I can't pass this up. I have to apply, right? So, and we should note that you you live out in Astoria, which is uh you know a, a, in terms of a historic town, uh, a settlement in, in Oregon. I mean, it's it's you know obviously nationally famous, internationally famous as well. For sure, uh, oldest town well, uh, west of the Mississippi. Well, let's so let's dive into some specific, maybe lesser known Oregonians or events that occurred here in Oregon um, that you and your organization are are trying to ra- raise more awareness about. Um, so maybe let's start with a, a name that we talked about when we previously spoke. Who was Alonzo Tucker? Yes. So Alonzo Tucker uh, was a Californian who was living in Marshfield, um, which is today Coos Bay, mm-hmm. in 1902, when he became the only known black person in Oregon to be lynched. Uh, he was a boxer and he owned a gym in Marshfield. Um, and he allegedly assaulted a white woman in 1902, as I said, and he was uh, jailed and managed to escape uh, when he learned that uh, there was a mob coming for him. And he hid out overnight, but the next morning he was found and then he was shot and hanged over a bridge that uh, stood where uh, the high school is now. And so our organization is working with a, a number of groups to try and maintain that story, and also create opportunities for healing uh, with some sort of a new public memorial to recognize the fact that uh, this is the only documented black lynching uh, in Oregon, uh, but it's part of a national story of extrajudicial killings of black people um, by white mobs. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that obviously carried on for decades uh, beyond Alonzo Tucker's murder, sadly. For sure. And so this is the only um, entry from Oregon that is part of a national effort to document these sites um, spearheaded by the Equal Justice Initiative. And the uh, the work to do that here in Oregon has been uh, headed up by Taylor Stewart, who created a uh, an organization of his own called the Oregon Remembrance Project. And so we've got a nice task force of folks uh, mostly representing Coos Bay in that community, but also folks from around the state. Uh, who are committed to learning from this atrocity um, and and remembering the story of Alonzo Tucker so that we don't make these stories uh, again. These We don't make these mistakes again. Right. Um, well, thank you for raising that awareness and talking about his story here today. Um, let's move on to, to a different, different piece of uh, Black history here in Oregon. What was Beaver Hill, and why is that a historically relevant um place that that Oregonians should know about. Yeah. So I I love the story of Beaver Hill. And it's it's a story that I don't come across many people who've heard of it before. 
but actually not too far from Coos Bay. This is between Coquille and uh, Marshfield is mm-hmm. where uh, there was once a mining, a coal mining community called Beaver Hill. Um, and it was founded uh, as a railroad town uh, or founded by the Southern Pacific Railroad um, to take advantage of large deposits of coal. Um, this region is the only part of Oregon that really had coal. Um, and so it was founded in 1894. And in 1895, uh, the, um, the operator of this mine needed to get experienced miners. So he sent a representative to West Virginia to recruit miners to take them all the way to Oregon. And so 17 blacks came out uh, as part of that recruitment effort. And they were promised upon arrival, they would receive $5 a day in pay and have good housing. Mm. Um, they took a steamship to San Francisco and then traveled overland to Roseburg and then walked the rest of the way. And when they got to Beaver Hill, they found out that there was no housing waiting for them and their pay would only be 90 cents a day. So that was uh, in January of 1895. And we know that um, by March, there was uh, at least 70 blacks living at Beaver Hill. Um, and by November, a strike had taken place. And when the black workers complained about their poor wages, their poor living conditions, they were fired en masse and they walked back to Marshfield where there was a collection started for them um, by the community's Chinese uh, residents. Um, and then they got passage back home. During that period, Zachary, I mean, how significant of a share do we know how significant of a share of Oregon's population that would be that, you know, 70 plus um, black men who, who were working in the mine? It would have been highly unusual, for sure. I mean, this is at a time when there were probably less than a thousand uh, blacks in all of Oregon, and you know, to think that at its at its peak, when with black employment, there were possibly over a hundred people there, because that was 70, 70 workers, but many of them had families as well. Right, they you know right. they came with their wives, uh, and they had children. So the black population. We have one account of uh, a man who was traveling through the area from Roseburg. And he reported going to a concert in the park and seeing uh, what he estimated to be 200 black people there. So Beaver Hill, uh, silently and for only a short amount of time, may have been one of, if not the largest population center of blacks in Oregon, uh, again, even if only for a year or two. So what what remains of Beaver Hill today? Uh, Nothing. Uh, But we're working to put a, a marker there on the actual Beaver Slough. Um, we've been working with the uh, Oregon Travel Information Council, which puts up the state highway markers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got a, a great group of uh, historians um, and folks from the uh, local museums, the local tribes, uh, to make sure that we can tell this story. Because it wasn't just blacks living there. It was also uh, immigrants from throughout Europe. There were Chinese, Filipino, Japanese uh, workers there, too, uh, Mexicans. So this was a really diverse place um, at a time. I mean, even today, you think about Oregon, right, and it right. really doesn't reflect that racial diversity. But, uh, you know, I have to remind people all the time that, you know, at different points in our history, Oregon was a very diverse place, depending on where you were. But we don't see manifestations of that now because of policy and because of racism, like what happened to the black miners who came and then were dismissed after the bait and switch with their wages. I'm glad you mentioned that we don't know a lot about this history because I, I think for a lot of Oregonians, um, no matter if they are um, people of color or white Oregonians or what have you, what they know about Oregon, 
Oregon's history um, with black folks is maybe the exclusionary um, law, you know, that that um, blacks were basically outlawed from from the beginning of our state's founding. And then the, you know, Vanport flood in its uh, dramatic impacts uh, to um, the black population and what was the second largest city in the state at the time. Um, That's right. In, in Oregon. But, you know, so why are these other stories um, and people and places that that your organization is trying to highlight? Why are why are those so important? Well, I think that they're important because the people who were here, I mean, their lives matter. You know, their stories have dignity. They they raised families here. They contributed to the creation of some of Oregon's first permanent communities. Um, And we need to recognize those experiences the same to the same degree that we talk about, you know, these uh, these white historical figures who uh, there's places named after them and there's uh, museums named after them and parks right. named after them. So few of the black individuals who contributed just as much to their communities, we don't know their names or their stories. So when we at Oregon Black Pioneers get our hands on a lead, we really want to dig into that because we believe that we'll have a better picture of our state heritage by understanding what were the lived experiences of people of African descent who were here and contributed to the development of these same places. What challenges um, do you face, Zachary, and do historians face piecing together this early history of, of, uh, of black pioneers in, in our state? Well, uh, I guess the hardest part is just that everything is very scattered, right? You know, there, before our organization came around, there really wasn't a single repository for keeping all of this information. And so because of that, um, what is out there hasn't really been maintained to the degree that historical societies for more than a century have been maintaining local histories about white Oregonians. Um, and the other challenge is that history is written by white people um, in this state. And so how often they write about black people really determines what stories we have to tell, because we have almost no surviving accounts of uh, the experiences of black Oregonians in their own hands. They all come from other people. And so we have to take the leads that we get and try to extrapolate as much information as we can when, you know, the people who are actually giving us this information are using derogatory language um, or, you know, they may only make reference, uh, referential comments about the blacks in their life um, who may have been their, you know, domestic servants. They may have been their slaves, frankly, because Oregon is a place where there were slaves. And we don't talk about that very much either. Well, talk about that a little bit more, because I, I know there's been a reckoning of sorts in some quarters in recent years when you think of um, the renaming um I, I hesitate to say controversies, but, you know, the event, events going down at U- University of Oregon or in Oregon State um, are really around the nation. People who are um, either proponents of slavery or in some cases held slaves of their own. What, what do we know about uh, slavery's um, existence in Oregon? Right. So we know of at least 40 named enslaved uh, blacks who were brought to Oregon um, between 1844. 1843 um, and uh, 1860. Um, And so if anyone thinks that there's never been slaves in Oregon, that's just not true. Uh, We know that there were enslaved blacks here. Um, And while Oregon on paper outlawed slavery as early as 1843 in the Organic Acts, uh, nonetheless, 
um, in the 1844 Black Exclusion Law, the first one that you mentioned before, it explicitly gave anyone who brought enslaved blacks to Oregon up to three years before they had to legally emancipate them. So while slavery was outlawed on paper, it was nonetheless allowed to exist here for years at a time. And many people often ignored that. And we know of certain individuals who were held as slaves uh, mm. far beyond that three-year uh, window when they were legally entitled, but their their slave owners were legally entitled to keep these people. How many of the people who arrived in Oregon via the the Oregon Trail were black? Um, I've heard numbers like like uh, only about three percent of the blacks of the people who took part of the Oregon Trail were black, but not all of them went to Oregon. You know, many of them uh, the blacks settled in Colorado. Um, many went to California. So the number of blacks who actually came to Oregon via the Oregon Trail was really slim, um, not a large number at all. Uh, so it's all the more telling that when Oregon started to pass its laws explicitly banning um, free blacks from settlements in Oregon, they did so at a time when the black population here was never more than 1% at all. Mm. So why would they devote so much time and attention to uh, you know, taking steps to keep out a population that had never, you know, at one point or another threatened the stability or the, you know, the control of the legislature or anything like that. And it really is white supremacy uh, because they wanted to create a place where there would be no blacks. They believed in the absence of blacks, they could become a more prosperous agricultural and economic place. Let's go back to some of the places and, and people we were talking about earlier. Um, so this is kind of from my neck of the woods where I grew up, uh, Jacksonville in Southern Oregon. How is uh, Jacksonville relevant to the state's black history? Jacksonville has uh, a big part to play in the history of early blacks in Oregon. It actually, Southern Oregon, you know, before the development of Portland as the hub of, of black Oregon, um, that really began with the railroad's arrival in the 1880s. Prior to that, uh, the closest thing you might call a black community in Oregon would have been in Southern Oregon. And Jacksonville uh, was a big part of that. And again, uh, the story of blacks in uh, Southern Oregon is a story of interconnectedness of different communities of color because the blacks lived among the Hawaiians and they lived among the Chinese. Um, and so these were very diverse places. And we, again, we don't, we don't see that represented there as well. But they came primarily to work in mining, uh, as gold mining and then right. coal mining as well. There were people among them who did really well for themselves, like uh, like Ben Johnson, who our organization helped uh, to have a mountain that had been known for decades as Negro Ben Mountain get renamed Ben Johnson Mountain uh, after his actual name was rediscovered. We, uh, One of our board members worked very closely with the Geographic Names Board to commemorate that um, and have it officially changed. And now it's one of the few place names in Oregon, named for a black person, mm -hmm. a known black person. So, Zachary, what, what can you tell us about a specific story that we might not know about in, like, Eastern Oregon? Uh, so there were blacks in Eastern Oregon uh, during the pioneering days. The Sewell family lived out in Canyonville, or excuse me, Canyon City, near John Day. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Columbus Sewell came for the gold rush in 1862 with his wife, Louisa, um, and their young son, Thomas Sewell. Um, and they built a home in Canyon City. And he, like many people, recognized that it's easier to make money uh, outfitting 
and supplying people who are looking for gold rather than looking for gold yourself. So he started a freight business and he used it to transport goods between John Day and the Dalles. And so he did that for many years. Louisa uh, apparently was known locally for making ice cream and playing croquet on their on their yard. Um, so they were very much a part of the community. And then more recent in history compared to them in the 1860s, we have folks like the Anderson family. There were two brothers who in the 1910s, Oscar and Walter Anderson, moved out okay. north and south of Burns to start um, ranches. And then their uh, Walter's wife, Martha, moved with them as well. Okay, so we've talked about Southern Oregon, Eastern Oregon, um, some of the coastal communities. I don't know. What about, what about the Eugene Springfield area? Any stories leap to mind of uh, the history of uh, Black pioneers in kind of the lower valley there? Sure. Um, so, I mean, the lower valley, uh, we have folks who lived in uh, near Roseburg, um, like William Eads and Myrtle Creek was the, the landing spot of um, Letitia Carson when she became the first black woman to successfully file a land claim under the Homestead Act. She settled near near there. And again, moving out of the pioneering era and into the modern era, Eugene, of course, the University of Oregon was a, a hotspot for uh, student activism uh, during the civil rights movement. And we have an exhibition that talks about that right now, which is up at the University of Oregon's Museum of Natural and Cultural History. Okay. So people should, um, if they're able to, I don't know if the museum is operating COVID safety wise, but go check that out if you're, if you're down there. You know, Zachary, I'm just curious, we're, we're in this era of, you know, in the last year, I mean, our conversation right now is starting the day of um, uh, the first day of the trial of uh, Derek Chauvin, the a police officer uh, who had his knee on uh, George Ford's neck for nine minutes last year. And this nation has been in this renewed mo- moment since then. What do you make of this as a historian and as a you know black man um, in America living through the last year? I mean, I would just say this is an example of how you know, history is always happening around us. Uh, sometimes we don't really understand it until we're we're past it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's the old saying? How's it go? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. You know, we we've seen these things before. Um, I was looking at a photograph the other day of uh, black women marching down the streets in Portland, holding signs that said "Ban the chokehold" and "Stop police killing." But it wasn't about George Floyd. It was about Lloyd Stevenson. Back in the 1980s, I mean, we've seen these things before here in Oregon, and they still are happening. And it's just, I wish I could say it's been a wake up call. But we, you know, we seem to live in a in a culture that perpetuates violence against black people um, so often unarmed uh, without any cause. And it's disgraceful as far as I'm concerned. So I just hope that by telling the truth about these things, We can do our part as a historical society, just like every organization has a role to play in working to dismantle white supremacy. Ours is by trying to present information about the past so that people can recognize how far we've come and also how far we have not come. I'm curious if you followed the um, kind of a gorilla statue going up. Uh, You know, it's the opposite of a statue coming down um, Mm -hmm. in Mount Tabor Park uh, of, of York who's obviously a, a person that I think a lot of a lot of Oregonians and Americans know. But I mean, what did you make mm-hmm. of that that moment? I love it. I love it. I, I thought it was great. I shared it all over my own social media. Um, I think that, you know, it's 
I don't want to see markers or historical monuments to slave owners or to people that, you know, didn't believe in the value of, you know, uh, black life, the life of other people of color. Uh, it's nice to see a testament to someone who uh, suffered those indignities, but also contributed greatly to what is our nation, what are the best things about our nation today. So I was really amazed to see that that bust of York go up. Um, and I fully endorse, you know, what else, any other sorts of hit and run art and art and history uh, activities that take place. That's just my opinion, but I think it's great. I mean, what do you have any York facts? <laughs> Anything about York uh, that that you would want to sure. want to say to people listening or watching? Yeah, so I mean, that's a that one's pretty personal to me because I I'm actually a seasonal ranger at Lewis and Clark National Historical Park here in Astoria, and so we talk about York on a regular basis. Um, York was uh, born in Caroline County, Virginia. I have lived in Caroline County, Virginia, but I had never even heard of York until I moved to Washington State. And, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to think that someone who lived less than an hour from, you know, where I once lived, uh, that I, I would have no information about their life and their story until I was thousands of miles from home. So I really appreciate that York's contributions uh, to one of the most tremendous and impactful historical moments in the 19th or the 18th century in American history. No, it was the 19th century um, that it's that it's finally being told. Um, and, uh, that, that of course is the Lewis and Clark expedition, you know, um, yes. that York was participated in, um, what do we know about his participation? Uh, well, he had a lot of freedoms during the actual, uh, journey that he would not have had, um, when he was still living in Kentucky, which is where he departed from with William Clark who owned him legally. Um, so he carried a gun, um, he hunted. He did some scouting along with other members of the expedition. He slept and uh, celebrated amongst all the other members of the Corps of Discovery. There's really touching moments when you see York in the Lewis and Clark journals. Uh, he is playing with Blackfoot children when they're up on the Northern Plains. And he, you know, he was sort of a spectacle for a lot of the tribes who had never seen, uh, you know, black man before. So I, I think that in those you know, that three and a half year period that York was a part of the Lewis and Clark expedition were probably the most significant moments of his life, not because of the, the historical significance of what he was doing, but because of the amounts of freedoms that he had that he never had before and never had afterwards, because uh, his his experiences after returning home uh, were quite tragic. Um, yeah. Yeah. And your, your story, uh, Zachary, that you mentioned, you had to come out West to learn his story. Um, that kind of says a lot about how we, um, capture and who gets to write these stories that are so consequential to so many people. Absolutely. So how can people get involved in Oregon black pioneers or in learning more about our state's black history generally? Well, I would always direct someone to visit our website. It is just Oregon black pioneers.org. Um, also, if you can see some of our exhibitions, I mentioned the one that's at the University of Oregon's Mat Museum of Natural and Cultural History. Um, please do check all of these to make sure places are open, though. Uh, but that one is called Racing to Change Oregon's Civil Rights Years, the Eugene Story. 
And then we have another exhibition that's up in Philomath right now called Black in Oregon, 1840 to 1870 at the Benton County History Museum, uh, which is about profiles of some of the black individuals who came uh, during the peak Oregon Trail years and then just before and just after. And then the last one, it's called All Aboard Railroading in Oregon's Black Community. And that's at the Oregon Rail Heritage Center in Portland. It's on display right now. And I believe that museum is free. Well, uh, those are three great um, options for people as they hopefully venture out into the world a little bit more. Thank you so much for taking time to talk about about those exhibits and so much more. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. You can also watch my interview with Zachary Stocks on our Facebook page. I shared a link to Oregon Black Pioneers website in the episode notes. If you like this show, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. And if you value our journalism, the best way to support us is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.